0: Thank you for coming. Today we welcome Dr. Ramani, who's in our section of uh, heart failure here at University of Maryland, and is very experienced um, at managing uh, ventricular assist devices in our, uh, many of our end-stage heart uh, patients, and he's an excellent teacher, and we're lucky to have him talk to us today, so welcome. Uh, That's great. Uh, So thank you, Mike, and it's good to be here. And so this was kind of an interesting talk to put together. Uh, I'm sure everyone has some uh, familiarity with with VADS, and uh, and so you know your feedback would be welcome at the end. You know whether you want more detail, less detail, more basics, and how to uh, you know refine this lecture for this audience in the uh, in the future. So we're going to cover uh, kind of a lot of ground, some basic LVAD terminology, so you guys know you know when you read the literature or on rounds what everyone's speaking about, a little bit of heart failure risk assessment. I think this is critical when you see patients in whatever unit you're in, the MICU or the CCU, in terms of, you know, how sick is this patient? Is this someone that at least deserves consideration for a VAD? And then spend some time on pump management, which I think is pretty complex. I think that it can be challenging, uh, and so I think you know, that, that it's just to get some basic familiarity, so if you're in the ER or you know, a pump comes into the CCRU so that you know, you know some basic uh, troubleshooting, you know, what to do. So heart failure risk assessment, so this is a big deal. You know, this is an older slide, but I think the point here is that, you know, that for stage D heart failure, so patients with highly symptomatic refractory heart failure, you know, that the outcomes on medical therapy are poor. This is from the REMATCH study, which was the pivotal, you know, study that got destination therapy LVAT approval. And as you can see in the medical therapy arm, about half the patients on inotropes were dead within about six months. There are probably thirty or 40,000 stage D patients in the United States. We do about 2,000 transplants a year, so you can do the math. There's a large number of very sick heart failure patients who will not be served with transplant, And so the thought is, and the current prevailing thought is that a lot of these patients may benefit from a left ventricular assist device and LVAD implants are increasing. So whatever your specialty, whether you practice in a community hospital or in a large academic center, odds are you're gonna be seeing an LVAD somewhere. And a lot of these patients show up in the ERs. Some of our patients show up at Baltimore, Washington, uh, at Howard County, depending on where the medics take them. And so if you're at a smaller hospital, you're gonna wanna have some idea of what exactly an LVAD is. So a lot of bad heart failure, medical therapy is inadequate in managing these patients. The mortality is still poor, even now 12 years after the fact. So the question is, well, how can you predict? You know, who's sicker from heart failure? Who's gonna need a VAD? And I wanna focus on a little bit on inpatient. And there's probably thousands of univariate predictors of heart failure severity. Biomarkers, physical exam findings, uh, hemodynamic parameters. I just wanna focus on a couple. So you know when our patients come in with heart failure and they have troponinemia, you know this isn't necessarily acute myocardial infarction. This is probably myocardial necrosis. This is a this is a poor prognostic sign. So someone leaks troponin with a decomp heart failure admission, that's a poor prognostic sign, a marker that they're at increased risk. Something that we think about. Blood pressure, very simple. You know someone comes in with hypertensive emergency and then heart failure, you can usually treat them and they'll do well. You know, as you guys know, the, the patients that are sicker are the patients that come in hypotensive or normotensive with heart failure. So I think this is an important point, point, is that someone that comes in, what we would think of as normotensive with decomp heart failure is at increased risk for inpatient mortality. And if you see these people, you should think about, you know, where should they be triaged? Should they go to a step-down unit or, you know, versus going to the, uh, the general medical floor? And I think this is an important one, I, and I wanna go through this with you. And so this is an inpatient risk assessment that was derived from the ADHERE registry, which is about 30,000 patients you know, from the mid, mid-2000s when this was collated. And I think this is a very, very important data set that they got as in patients who have abnormal renal function and those patients who are also not necessarily hypotensive but have a lower blood pressure have a much higher mortality. So if you see a patient like this, you know, in whatever unit or on the floors, and they have a abnormal BUN, you know, blood pressure less than 150 millimeters of mercury and an elevated serum creatinine, they have a 22% inpatient mortality. So a patient like this that you're seeing in the ER, a patient like this that you're seeing on the floors, is probably best served in a higher level of care and deserves consideration for an LVAD. So patients like this that you're thinking about at least deserve consideration. So these are ways you can look at patients and assess in your mind, well, is this someone who's going to be at risk for dying pretty quickly? Or is this just in your run-of-the-mill heart failure patient who can probably just be discharged on their way with regular cardi- cardiology follow-up? So abnormal blood pressure, abnormal renal function denotes higher inpatient risk, short-term risk. These are sick patients. This is even simpler. This is from another registry, optimized registry, and they they found that patients who had a blood pressure less than 100 millimetres of mercury systolic and a creatinine greater than two had a 16% inpatient mortality. So once again, when you're seeing these people and you're you're trying to assess in your mind, well, how sick is this heart failure patient? Is there a lower risk or a higher risk? These two inpatient scores boil it down really simply for you. If you have blood pressure that's lower or even marginal, An abnormal renal function. Just in your mind you should think of them as a higher risk patient and maybe deserve consultation or consideration for a higher level of care. So part of what our role in the hospital is risk assessment. We see a lot of people on consults, you know, in different units and we need to decide, you know, is this someone who's really sick? Are they going to need a VAD, or how is their heart failure going to progress? In our mind, these are things that I look at. So if, so you could look at a bunch of different parameters, BNP, urine microalbumin, EKG, you know, a host of other biomarkers. But to sim- if you want to take a couple take-home points, these are the two that I would take a look at. And then you know this, and I can't emphasize it enough, when you look at your heart failure patient, use this schematic, you know, in terms of what your perfusion and volume status is. These are independent of each other and they should be viewed at independently. So is someone you know congested, what's their volume status? Or is someone, you know, have a poor perfusion, what's their you know status, either warm or cold. And so we use this, I teach this to my fellows and the residents. And I encourage you to use this schematic when you're assessing patients with heart failure to help, you know, drive treatment as well as triaging to different parts of the hospital. Okay, so now moving forward, so how do we approach the sick heart failure patients? We're talking about VADs, you know, you guys are are critical care medicine doctors, and so you're going to deal with more sicker patients, and so I want to go through this with you. And so, you know, are you sure the patient has heart failure, and are are you sure that they're sick? So that's the first step, right? We see a lot of patients and like, well, this guy's maybe borderline anemic, may have a low grade fever, white count's a little bit high, you know, may have pneumonia. Are Are you pretty sure that this patient has heart failure? And if you're not sure, you know, and they're sick, we always encourage, you know, Confirmation of hemodynamics with a, a PA catheter, at least uh, to basically assess what the hemodynamics are, not necessarily for guiding treatment, but to make sure that you're barking up the right tree and what you're doing is heart failure and not necessarily, you know, a vasodilatory shock or some other uh, process. You know, the initial step, as you know, is afterload reduction. You know, um, ACE inhibitors, hydralazine, uh, nitroprusside, depending on what have you, that's the first step. But if your pressure's in the 80s, Or the 70s, obviously, afterload reduction is not an option. You know, if you have a low cardiac index, then we try inotropic support, improve tissue perfusion. Okay, so if you can't tolerate afterload reduction or you don't have the pressure and you're low-output heart failure, we then uh, kind of move stepwise up in this way to inotropes, dibutamine, milrinone. So if you still are not achieving tissue perfusion, you have ongoing ischemia you know, ongoing problems with a uh, circulatory support, then the next step is, you know, we call in the cath lab, you know, this guy's in cardiogenic shock, he's not responding to what we would u- normally do, we want you to put in a balloon pump. Okay, so then what happens now? You got your balloon pump and the guy's still sick. Okay, still in cardiogenic shock, still, you know, bilirubin's high, BUN's high and rising, you know, there's evidence of uh, metabolic acidosis. So. These are the patients in the inpatient setting where you would now move on to mechanical circulatory support, which is gonna be kind of the, uh, the bulk of the talk moving forward. So so I wanna start with the VAD terminology. So when you meet with the engineers and you talk to the, you know, the surgeons, and so the, the language that they use, okay, is first is VAD. You know, as you know, this is a ventricular assist device and there are different kinds. There's an LVAD, which is obviously a left ventricular assist device, an RVAD, which is for the right, you know, bivads, someone who has left and right-sided support, and the total artificial heart, which we'll just touch on briefly. Not many centers do the total artificial heart, and we don't do that many of them. So the next uh, step is where is the pump located? Is it paracorporeal, meaning the pump actually sits outside the body, so the blood comes outside the body, is pumped, and then goes back in? Or is it intracorporeal, meaning the entire pump is within the body? And so the bulk of the VADs that we use, you know, for you know long-term support are intracorporeal. You know, you the pumps in the body. The only thing that exits is a drive line. But for for short-term support, we do use pericorporeal VADs. I'm sure you guys have seen the Centromag You know, where the VAD, the pump sits on the table next to the patient. So that's a pericorporeal VAD. You know, the blood comes out of the body, gets pumped, and then goes back in. Pericorporeal. You know, the Thoratec. You know you know, paracorporeal P-VADs were the, really the standard of care for many years up until, you know, kind of 2002, 2003, and those were, you know, where the blood comes out of the body, so that's a paracorporeal versus intracorporeal. All the VADs that people go home on right now are intracorporeal uh, VADs. So what is the duration of support? So what do we need the VAD for? You know, is this someone who just, you know, went for a, you know, cabbage mitral valve repair and couldn't come off cardiopulmonary bypass, so they need what we think is short-term support? Or is this someone like we talked about with progressive late-stage heart failure, severe mitral regurgitation, that's gonna need long-term support? Or is this someone who just may need intermediate support? You know, someone who had a VAD, but has right ventricular dysfunction. We think we have to nurse the right ventricle along for a, a week or two. Okay, so in your mind, there are different pumps to meet these different needs. So how does the pump work? Is it pump with pulsatile flow, you know, or is it continuous flow? And we'll talk a little bit about these different kinds of flow. Okay, and how are we putting in the pump? Is this something that the surgeons are doing in the OR, or is this something that the cath lab does? Now, the cath lab can place, you know, pumps that are called impella or um, <clears throat> tandem heart, which we haven't done in quite some time. Most of the implantations are gonna be surgical, but you may work at a program where they have a very busy percutaneous VAD program, where the interventional cardiologists, either in collaborations with the surgeons or not, may put in a lot of percutaneous uh, pumps. So what, what, what's part of the VAD? What's part of the system? Well, there's a pump, which we've talked about. Every pump right now has a drive line. It needs a power source. So it has some cable that exits the patient, comes out, is usually tunneled, Uh, into the abdomen and comes out through the belly that provides the power source and then it has to be there's peripherals the controller the batteries the bag and the system so every pump you know has these different components and there can be uh, problems with all of these i'm sure you guys have seen if you've rotated rotated through you guys drive line infections okay pump thromboses. there are problems we've had problems with how the the, the drive line connects to the controller where the little you know, screws uh, get damaged, okay? And patients have to charge their batteries, okay? So there can be a problem at any stage along with these, uh, with these components. When you think of the VAD and you try to troubleshoot the VAD, it's useful in your mind to think about these different, uh, different areas. Okay, so why, why do we put in VADs? What are the indications? And so obviously the, the key indication, you know, the, the, the you know, most well-established is bridge to transplant. Patient's sick, you think they need a transplant, but for whatever reason, you cannot get them safely to transplant on meds alone. So you think they're gonna need a VAD to stabilize them, keep them healthy, to buy them time to get transplanted. Destination therapy, you think the patient's got bad heart failure, they're sick, but for whatever reason, they're not a transplant candidate. Now these definitions, Medicare stopped using these just within the past couple of weeks. So in our minds we think of these, but we can no longer use these indications to put in a VAD. So bridge to recovery, bridge to recovery, someone with fulminant myocarditis, You know, giant cell myocarditis, you know, severe myocardial necrosis, You know, you think that they're gonna get better, okay, but you need to buy time. And sometimes these patients get by with ECMO, but if you're thinking you may need a VAD, okay? Or someone with acute onset cardiomyopathy you think that may recover, so are they gonna recover? And then finally, bridge to candidacy. So you got a patient, you don't know them that well, they may smoke, maybe they use drugs, you know, kind of a, a questionable social support, you don't really know for sure, so, you're not sure where this patient falls and so you think you put in a VAD and see what kind of patient they are. They're going to develop into a transplant candidate after all. So this bridge to recovery and bridge to candidacy, unfortunately we can't use that anymore. They took that away from us within the past couple of weeks and so we we have to use these rigid kind of rematch definitions, bridge to transplant and destination therapy when we're talking about our uh, durable VADs. So what is bridge to transplant? As you know, I mean, If you just have a regular status two patient, this is a patient that's at home, they're not on dibutamine, they're not on milrinone, almost never gonna get transplanted. We've done about one of these in the past four or five years. You just can't do it. So in order to get someone transplanted, you have to move up the transplant list. Okay, either you have to be on inotropes, milrinone or dibutamine, or you have to be like really sick in the hospital. So, you know, so if someone's just doing okay with their stable heart failure, you you want them to be stable for as long as they can, but if they get sicker, there's a good chance they won't get transplanted. And so you have to think about this when you're putting in a VAD, okay? What's your wait time on the transplant list? You know, what's your body size and your blood type? If you have a small little lady, you know, you may not even be able to put in a, a VAD, and if you have blood type O, you know, a blood type O in our program is going to wait almost an average-sized male blood type O at least 18 months to get transplanted. At least 18 months, independent of everything else, as opposed to a small, a small blood type B that's a female who could get a donor very, very quickly. Maybe even be able to get a pediatric, pediatric donor. And what are the risks? Someone who's had four prior sternotomies, cabbage, mitral valve repair. Okay, maybe some other surgery. Then you want to do another surgery. put in a VAD. You know, is that going to be the right thing or not? So a lot of stuff goes into this in terms of deciding. Uh, you know, what to do here. Okay, what are the risks? If you put someone on Dibutamine and they have a lot of VT, well, that may not be the right option. Okay. So you know, when do we uh, not do this? You know, so I want you to think of the heart, and, and this is one of the goals for this talk, as two separate pumps. The right ventricle and the left ventricle. So the heart is, in essence, two separate pumps. And as you think about VAD and VAD complications and how to optimize the VAD, it's very useful to think about the heart, although they share the interventricular septum, as two largely separate pumps, okay? That there are related, but think of them in many ways as different. So if you have someone with horrible RV failure, biventricular failure, okay, and you put in a a VAD, that may not necessarily help the patient that much. It may cause more problems, okay? You know, there's really no great buy bad. The total artificial heart is approved, but very few centers do it, and even fewer do it well. You know, I think we've put in eight since my tenure here, and we've only successfully bridged one patient to transplant. So 12.5% isn't really great odds. Uh, You know, other centers, Richmond and Arizona, have more experience with this pump and can do it probably a little bit more effectively. Again, we talked about multiple chest surgeries and patient preference. You know, can the patient manage a VAD? Do they want a VAD? They want to be connected to the battery and do they you know, life with a VAD, you know, it's living, but it's not necessarily, you know, same as life with a transplant. You can't, you know, go to the pool, you can't do a lot of things that you would otherwise do. Okay. And this is less of an issue with newer pumps, but VAD sensitizes you. You know, the, the metal, the surgery, the blood transfusions, you can generate a lot of antibodies, which can make transplantation more difficult. Okay. So DT destination therapy, these are for sick people, failure to respond to medical therapy, low EF, you know, either on inotropes or low, uh, you know, oxygen, um, VO2 max, and the VAD has to fit for you. And this is This is all. This was derived from that 2001 rematch um, trial and hasn't really changed. And so, you know, this DTBTT is kind of archaic terminology for those of us who do VADS, but for whatever reason, that's a terminology that uh, uh, Medicare, Medicaid has chosen to move forward. Okay. So this is what we think about, right? When you see a patient who's sick, you know, what are they going to need? You know, is this someone who, you know, either they're acutely critically ill and you need to bridge them? in the short term, either with an ECMO or a balloon pump? Is there someone who you think may need support for a period of time, like a couple of weeks, in which we usually think about a Centromag, a paracorporeal pump, or, you know, for a longer period of time, like the Thoratec PVAT or the Total Artificial Heart? If Someone needs long-term support, either for bridge to transplant or destination therapy, we're talking about, you know, three pumps that we use here at the University of Maryland. Uh, the Jarvik 2000, which is still investigational, the HeartMate 2, which is approved for, trans- for DTN, BTT, and the heartware which is approved for a bridge to transplant. So, you know, these are, these are the different pumps you're going to see for different indications. You know, so you'll see, you know, you know, Jim Gammy's patient may roll out, you know, SISO's mitral valve repair. You know, they may come out on ECMO if the heart really crapped out, or they may come out on a Centromag, you know, or, uh, you know, someone, that in, or, you know, the surgeries that Kesheva and, and uh, C. do will come out with, uh, you know, Jarvix and HeartMate 2s for different indications. So, you know, taking care of that is, is kind of tough. And it takes a lot of people, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of these people you know, when you're rotating through either our unit or the cardiothoracic unit. You know, we have a nurse that really helps with education, a nurse practitioner who drives the outpatient care. Most of you know our engineers, Eric and Nick, and uh, there are you know, four cardiologists and a couple surgeons, and, and this is our multidisciplinary team who really is uh, invaluable, because these patients, they're, they're resource intensive. takes a lot of work to run a VAD program, to make sure that, you know, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, both both for CMS purposes, and it's a lot of INRs to check, it's a lot of echoes to check, a lot of imaging to, uh, to follow up on. So I just want to show this to you. This is a Syncardia artificial heart pump, and so this is basically ventriculectomy. If you want to put this pump in, they take out the heart, the whole heart. All that's left are a couple of atrial cuffs. And they put in this pump, which is, uh, you know, two pneumatically driven pumps, one for the right side and one for the left side. And these are both, as you can see, inside the chest, and the drive lines come out of the body. Like I said, we've done a few of these. Uh, Our outcomes aren't as good as we would like, and we're always looking for good candidates, hopefully, that we could get better at putting uh, putting in this pump. So why do we do VADs? You, know, you know, what is, this? it sounds like a real pain, the patients are sick, you guys see the worst in the, in the units, you know, the patients who are doing poorly, they get infections and clots and strokes. It's because, you know, most of the patients and many that you probably don't see, actually do pretty well. And it's kind of rewarding when you take some, the bulk of the people are, are sick as stink, you know, these heart four, these class four patients, can't do anything, and then you hopefully get them to, you know, minimally symptomatic, and ultimately get them transplanted. So the goal with VAD is really, you know, to restore quality of life, you know, to make people functional again. And, you know, the data suggests that you can do that in appropriately selected patients. So, I mean, this is an important question. So what's the right time to put in a VAD? If you put it in someone when they're not sick enough, then you put them at risk for surgical complications, for stroke, you know, for infection. But if you wait till they're too sick, you know, when they're in shock, we know the outcomes are worse. So we use this Intermax profile, and it was developed with the recognition that not all heart failure is the same. There's class four heart failure, but there's different kinds of class four heart failure. And so there's what we call profile one, which is really sick, you know, cardiogenic shock. You know, progressive, then class two, which is what we call progressive decline. Class three, which is stable, but you're inotrope dependent. And we classify class four heart failure in these specific subgroups with the recognition that we'd like to avoid doing patients all the, when they're ones and twos, and maybe catch them when they're threes and fours, okay? And this is a busy slide just showing that, you know, we still do 70% of the patients as class one, as Intermax profiles ones and twos, and their outcomes are worse. So we need to better as a group. Okay, so who should not get a VAD? If you're looking at someone, you're like, you know, bad heart failure, should this patient get a VAD? So irreversible renal failure, meaning that this patient, you don't think the renal failure is related to low cardiac output or would not come back. A lot of problems with this. You know, dialysis centers don't want VADs. They don't take VADs. So, you know, unless you plan on keeping that patient in the hospital until they're transplanted, It becomes a problem. So this is a class three, meaning contraindication for VAD at the current time. Obviously, this is a no-brainer if you're infected and you're putting hardware in. You know, severe bleeding, again, these require anticoagulation. You know, we want you to live, you know, at least, you know, one or two years. The current goal is 70% of the patients should make it two years. So if you have some other systemic disease that's going on that won't improve with a VAD bad lupus, you know, bad you know, vascular disease, bad some other systemic disease, you know, then you should think long and hard about whether VAD is the right thing. Okay, so the, just kind of some basics on, on, on the VAD. Now moving forward, uh, you know, so all VADs depend on preload. So if the LV doesn't fill and you have an LVAD, your VAD's not gonna work. The LV has to fill. So the LVAD is dependent upon RV function. So again, thinking about this in your mind as two separate and independent pumps. All VADs are preload dependent. The VADs are all ECG independent. So Unlike a balloon pump, okay, the balloon pump is what times to inflate in diastole, right? That's the, the most common trigger with the balloon pump is your ECG, the VAD is ECG independent. It doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't time it to the QRS, the P or anything like that. And I think this is a very key point that I really want to drive home to you. Their VADs are afterload sensitive. Blood pressure management is absolutely critical when it comes to VAD management. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. I think that's a key point. Anticoagulation, obviously, and then infection, bleeding, stroke, Pump malfunction were better, but these can never be eliminated. And you're putting, you know, seventy-five thousand dollars worth of hardware in a patient. You're going to be, you know, susceptible to all of these things. So those are common sense key points. I want you to take home are this afterload sensitive, okay, and preload dependent. Because when you troubleshoot VADs and you're getting low flow alarms, okay, you're getting high, you know, high powers or low powers. I want you to think about some of this stuff, okay, when you try to figure out what's going on. So pulsatile pumps. Not gonna spend much time on this. You're not gonna see them uh, much, and we don't do many of them. So I really don't wanna doubt, del- just know that they exist. Uh, continuous flow pumps, HeartMate 2, Jarvik, uh, Heartware, Centromag, these are gonna be the pumps that at any given time, there's usually a few of these in the CTICU, and you, may, and you may see them you know, in the CCRU or some other places, maybe just for a short period of time. These are newer, smaller, okay, and they are very afterload sensitive. So we'll, I'll show you figures that show how the, how the flow through the VAD drops as your, as your blood pressure rises, okay? Because of the, uh, the continuous flow nature, the risk of hemolysis is higher. And I'll, we'll talk a little bit about the GI bleeding risk with these pumps and uh, the, why, the, why patients are more susceptible to uh, mucosal bleeding, specifically GI bleeding. Okay, and higher risk of thrombosis, which is why anticoagulation is more important with uh, with these pumps. So this was the uh, one of the older pulsatile VADs. This is the HeartMate XVE. This was uh, the first destination therapy approved pump, and this was a really big pump, intracorporeal pump, which I think you know worked well in terms of keeping people alive, but it had a, a whole host of problems associated with it. You know, it was a high infection risk limited to bigger people. A lot of people were too small for this pump, and the pump didn't last. It had these pusher plates, a lot of moving parts. The pump just did not last well. A lot of pump thrombosis, a lot of exchange rates due to mechanical failure, which is probably one of the bigger problems with this pump. So then we move to these continuous flow pumps. This is the uh, HeartMate 2, which is an axial flow pump. And all that means, axial flow, is the pump turns in the direction of blood flow, in the heart wear, which you'll see as well, is a centrifugal pump. And what that means is the blood flows in here and comes out perpendicular. So if you think of like um, like a, a, a merry-go-round, you know where you're spinning around and the, and the force is pulling you out. So the, the, the centrifugal pump uses that same principle. So this spins really fast and the blood comes in and it kind of goes out perpendicular. Kind of you think about how the force pulls you out when you're spinning in a circle at an amusement park ride or something like that. So the centrifugal flow kind of comes out through here. And this uh, doesn't have bearings, okay? It uses kind of a magnetically, uh, kind of a magnetically elevated kind of a, uh, a surface. And so this is, in theory, a more durable pump. Okay, so this is the hardware. And uh, I think there's uh, one, maybe two of these in the CTICU right now. At any given time, there's usually, you know, one or two of these in the hospital, okay? We use this, it's approved for left heart support. Some centers use this for right ventricular support as well. We have not as of yet done a heartware RVAD. We've talked about it, we haven't done it. Approved for bridge to transplant, not yet approved for destination therapy. Studies ongoing. And this is a pretty cool pump, look at this. The pump sits within the pericardium, okay, and it has this drive line that extends up to the ascending aorta. So this is actually a pretty nifty little pump. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for, for this pump. But as you can see, there's still a drive line, okay? There's still something that comes out of the body that has to be connected. And this is the HeartMate 2. You can see this was the original XVE pump, how much bigger this was and how clunkier this was compared to this newer HeartMate 2 pump, which is, again, the workhorse pump. If you're at any hospital in the country that does VADs, you're gonna see the HeartMate 2. Okay, this is the workhorse pump probably across the world. Uh, most of these pumps so what's the advantage of these uh, continuous flow pumps Uh, they're smaller okay they're easier to put in they have less moving parts and uh and so they they're they're better they're clearly better but we still have a way to go because over time they're going to get infected almost everybody will get a driveline infection because the holy grail would be can you develop a a vad without a driveline and i think that's where the future is going it's not there yet Every pump still has a drive line, um, but that would be the the future. So you know the question is, well, what's the difference between pulsatile and non-pulsatile flow? I mean, teleologically, you would think humans have evolved with pulsatile flow. You know, the heart is pulsatile, or organs, you know, get pulsatile flow, and so we kind of uh, you know change that when we put in a heartmate two or a heartware. Because now you have continuous flow. There's no real, you know, systole and diastole. There's continuous flow. So what does that, what does that mean? You know, we don't really know. You know, the thought is that there's some organs that like pulsatile flow better, okay, than uh, continuous flow. To date, there's been no real compelling evidence that you cause any, you know, damage to your adrenal glands or to your intestines or your kidneys with continuous flow. But you know, it's just an interesting thing to think about, okay? We, you know continuous flow versus uh, pulsatile flow. Um, you know, it's just observations that people have had. There's something to think about with the VADs that we have. So you guys have an important job when you're taking care of VADs. And, and it's important to think as a, as, as a medical doctor. You know, the surgeons put these things in, okay, but then it's up to you to manage them. And I want to focus on a couple of these things, which I think are really important. Blood pressure and arrhythmias I think are the two that I really want to focus on you know anticoagulation uh is 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 a little bit more complicated and some of these other things are common sense so I would say probably once a year at our hospital and twice a year at our affiliate hospitals we get patients that come in and they call us they say the pump is alarming we don't know what's going on and so the first question is was is the pump working and they're like we don't know okay we don't know if it's working or not and this happens in RER too and so you should listen to the VAD, okay? If, you, if you're not sure if it's working or not and the pump has an alarm and you don't know what the alarm is, listen to the VAD, because you should you can tell, you'll hear the VAD. So if you don't hear the VAD, okay, then you have to see, are their batteries charged? Are they actually connected? Like, what's going on? Okay, so my, my first advice is to listen to the VAD. So if you see a pump and it's alarming or the patient's sick, and if it, it should sound like a nice hum. If it sounds all clunky, you know, then you, you think that there may be something wrong. And you'll definitely be able to tell if the pump is, is, you know, functioning or not functioning, you know, being on or off by listening to it. You should hear this hum, okay? And many vads won't have a pulse. So we'll get called sometimes that this patient has no pulse and they're freaking out. You know, a lot of the continuous flow of vads will have no pulse, no carotid pulse, no femoral pulse, okay? So, just, so that in of itself should not mean anything to you. You know, as the, as, maybe as the heart recovers, our patients may become more pulsatile. Okay, but that in of itself may be functioning perfectly fine without any discernible pulsation. So that in of itself shouldn't uh, freak you out. If the ER calls you, this guy's got no pulse. You should, you, know, you should try to work them through what's going on. So these are important points. The blood pressure is really important, okay? And, and I know Eric and Nick and, and the surgeons really freak out regarding the blood pressure. And what's the blood pressure? What's the blood pressure? And kind of want to go through what, why this says. We typically look at the mean arterial pressure. And the reason for this is pretty obvious, right? If you have continuous flow, there's really no systolic pressure, right? If you're, in theory, continuous flow, there's no SBP. So we we look at the mean, we look at the map. That's what we look for. And so sometimes, you know, you have to, uh, we typically like the cuff, the automated cuff works pretty well. If you don't get anything by the cuff, then we, we try to find it with Doppler. So you have to be careful. If someone is pulsatile, someone's recovered function, they may have some pulsatility, okay? They may have some pulsatility. And so if you just check that with a, you know, with, a, uh, with a Doppler, you're gonna get the systolic pressure, you're not gonna get the mean arterial pressure. Which so we always say use the cuff first, the automated cuff. If you don't get anything, assume they're not pulsatile and then use the Doppler to get your mean arterial pressure. 65 to 90, we, and we're thinking more 75 to 85 is probably the newer, the newer uh, targets, higher stroke risk with higher uh, blood pressures. Okay, and this is an important point. There is reduced flow if you're hypertensive. The VAD does not pump, the VAD flows less the higher your blood pressure is. Okay, so these, this is probably the only graph I'm gonna show you and these are called HQ curves. And what I wanna show you is, this is the differential pressure. What's the pressure in the ventricle compared to in the uh, aorta? What's that pressure difference? So if you have your VAD set here at you know a typical speed that we do, you know 9,000 RPMs, you can see you know if your pressure differential is 30 versus 60, how much the flow difference is in the VAD. Okay, so you know just a, a you know a, not a huge pressure differential causes a significant drop in flow through the VAD that increases the VAD thrombosis risk. Okay, it may impair tissue perfusion. So, this is a critical point. So, you know, we, we, we kind of uh, drive this home a lot, but if we have a VAD with a mean arterial pressure of like 105, normally, you know, that doesn't mean much to any of you or me for most of the patients we see. with a VAD, that's a huge problem, it's a stroke risk. It's a thrombosis risk because you're flowing much less blood through the vad, and so if we can't get good pressure, sometimes we put an a line in these people, move them into the unit for the sole purpose of blood pressure management, and then we use the same drugs, you know, ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, you know, hydralazine, the same drugs. But this is a critical point: is that you know we don't discharge people from the hospital unless we have a good handle of their blood pressure, because uh, you know it's really a, a big thrombosis and stroke risk for the patients. So the flow, I think this, this is pretty straightforward. If you turn, so what do you change on the VAD? What can you set? Well, you set the speed. That's the one thing you set. You know, it's not like a balloon pump where you can change a lot of different stuff. For the VADs, you set the speed. You can turn the speed up and you can turn the speed down. And this makes sense, right? If you increase the speed, you should have more flow. If you decrease the speed, you should have less flow. Common sense, okay? And, this, and, th- and so you know, this is an important point we talked about. If you have a higher pressure gradient across the pump, higher systemic blood pressure, there's gonna be less flow. So, th- so, so, uh, so this is, uh, again, what we talked about. If there's decreased pressure gradient, there's more flow, basic stuff. What about power? The VAD tells you, every VAD will tell you the power in watts. The VAD knows how much, you know, what it takes for the pump to turn. So the VAD knows you know, how much power it's supposed to take. Okay, and I guess this makes sense. If you crank up the speed, the VAD's gonna take more power. So the power is reported, the power is important. You're gonna get the VAD power. And so if they, the nurse calls you and said, you know, the VAD power is really high, or the VAD power is really low, well, you should, you should kind of know exactly, well, what goes into the power, what could be going on with the patient, and what do I do about it? So every, all the VADs have a range. So, if my VAD's at 6,000, my VAD's at 3,000 RPMs, you should know what the power is. And if it's above or below you know, the range for any given speed, it should make you wonder well, what's going on? Why is the power higher or why is the power lower than what it should be? Okay. So, you know, if you increase your blood pressure, and, and this is kind of a, a difficult point to understand, but if your blood pressure is higher, your pump power drops because the pump is dumb. The pump just turns, and if the pressure is higher, okay, it's going to be harder for the pump to inject blood. It's not as if the, the vad gets smarter and then automatically adjusts the speed. The vad doesn't. So if your if your pressure if your blood pressure is higher, the will will show up as a decrease in your pump power. So that's a kind of a difficult concept to understand. It took me a while to wrap my head around this one. Now this is an important. If you have a vad thrombus on the rotor. there's a clot on the rotor itself, that's gonna increase that power. That makes sense, right? There's drag. The pump is no longer as efficient. There's mechanical drag on the pump as a turn with this thrombus. However, if there's a clot in the inflow cannula, okay, where it goes into the heart, or the outflow cannula, where it's anastomosed to the aorta, that's gonna show up as a decrease in your power. Why is that? It's because the VAD's gonna be flowing less. So if you have a clot in the inflow cannula, Okay, your power, in the, so blood can't get into the VAD. The power is gonna go down. So you can have a VAD thrombus either with an increase in your power or, your, or a decrease in your power. Okay, and you, and you have to think about where the thrombus could be, you know, and in, in how you work that up, which is beyond, the, beyond kind of what we wanna talk about. So if you're dry, okay, or you're hemorrhaging somewhere, there's gonna be less flow, so your power is gonna drop. Okay, so if someone, you know, gets is dehydrated from diarrhea or they're bleeding, okay, there's going to be less flow through the VAD, less flow, so the power drops. This is, you got, you're probably going to see this post-op. So you have a VAD that comes in, you know, post-op day five, and all of a sudden their power drops, okay? You know, you have to be, you have to be thinking about could they be, you know, could they be tamponading? Could their RV be compressed, their VAD's not filling, and now their power is down? All right, so these are these are important things. And when you get called the bad powers up, the bad powers down, I want you to think about some of these things and try to troubleshoot what's gonna be going on. And this is published. I think I gave you in one of the, the, the files was a very nice, you know, thing that shows if the power is high, the pulsatility index and the speed, like what could be going on? And I think this is on the intranet as well. So if you, you know, you're at nighttime and you're, you're trying to troubleshoot this VAD, you can always call the engineers on call or one of the doctors, but this material is available on the uh, intranet. What about arrhythmias? So is VT a problem with an LVAD? I mean, is, is, would VT be a problem? And, and it usually is, you know, because it affects LV filling. You know, VT will affect the RV, and so VT affects RV function, and so the LV won't fill. This is why if someone has refractory ventricular tachycardia, you know, an LVAD may not be the best therapy because the VAD may not function properly because the VT will worsen RV function. Now, is VT problem with a BIVAD? No. Right? You mean, because you're supporting both sides of the heart. And we talked about the heart two pumps. So the bivad is not a problem. There's a patient that's CTSU now with, uh, with bivads. And she's been in, like, she's been in, in VT for you know, a week at a time. And it's not a big deal because you have bivads. If it was just an LVAD, it would be a big deal. So, what causes the VT with the VAD? Well, it takes, and you have to think about this. It could be LV wall tension. Maybe the ventricle is too dilated, there's too much wall tension. You have to turn up the speed. Alternatively, maybe the ventricle is too small and the cannula is irritating the ventricular wall. Okay, and you have to turn, have to turn down the speed. So echo may be helpful, okay? VT can impair LV filling and worsen RV function if you're hoping this patient could recover. So we, t- we treat VT pretty seriously in an LVAD patient. BIVAD's n- not a big deal at all, but with an LVAD, VT is, uh, is a big deal. Aggressively managed with antiarrhythmics and trying to identify the mechanism. Anticoagulation, our protocol's complicated. I, I don't want to get into it. I just know that it's uh, available on the internet. Uh, you know, We typically use warfarin with with pump-specific targets. Okay, uh, The engineers know about our anticoagulation protocols. I think it's beyond the scope of our, uh, our discussion. So why do the patients with continuous flow of VADs have GI bleeds? And so it's really because of the high shear stress of the continuous flow causes uh, you know a uh, breakdown of uh, von Willebrand's factor so you get you know acqu- acquired von Willebrand's factor deficiency so this is similar to aortic stenosis you know some of the avms that you would see with aortic stenosis that improve once the aortic valve has been re- repaired similarly if patients have gi bleeding this won't get better until the vad comes out so if someone has a, a vad complication of a gi bleeding the treatment for that is to transplant the patient so usually they have to stay in the hospital. They get one a time and get them transplanted because the mechanism for this is not something that'll get better with you know more or less anticoagulation, more or less antiplatelet therapy. This is just a fact of life with the VAD is that some people get von Willebrand's factor deficiency. So this is a big deal. This LVAT, This was just this, this past week, and this was as you can tell in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what and what at these different centers, they pooled their data, Cleveland Clinic Duke and Barnes Jewish Hospital in uh, St. Louis. They showed a tremendous increase in VAD thrombosis. And we've actually you know, seen this as well, and we're not as big, obviously, as these places, and our institution as well. A tremendous, tremendous increase in LVAD-associated thrombosis with the HeartMate II pump. And I don't know what'll happen. you know, Because the HeartMate II is the only DT pump, I don't know that the FDA would, would do much, but if you saw this with like a mechanical aortic valve or a mechanical mitral valve, I'm sure it would be pulled off the market with this kind of data. But there's not many pumps available. So this is pretty alarming. You know, I think that when when the pumps were in clinical trial, every pump was handmade you know, handmade within the United States. I have no idea how the pumps are made now when they're putting in tens of thousands of pumps worldwide. I just don't know if it's a quality control issue. Uh, But it's, I mean, these are like, you know, a lot of the the, the major players, you know, nationwide, you know, Cleveland Clinic and Duke really enrolled a lot of people. So I don't think it's the surgeons or the doctors. So this has just come out last week, you know, which is really uh, an interesting area for our field. And this is is a, a pump thrombosis. This is an explanted VAD. You can see the clot in the rotor, and you can imagine why that would drive up the power in the hemolysis as it would cause in the problems associated with the pump that looks like this. This is one of our patients. The VAT actually stopped in this patient. Fortunately, you know, her, you know, she had in, enough intrinsic LV function that we could, she could go to the OR, get her pump exchanged, but her pump actually uh, stopped. So I, I want to conclude talking about RV failure, and this is really becoming a bigger problem for us. An LVAD is a therapy for, the, for left ventricular failure. It's univentricular support for left ventricular failure. LVAD does not treat RV failure, and in many cases, RV failure may worsen with an LVAD. And so a lot of the work that we do, you know, and that C and Kesheva, you know, and that we talk about is, you know, is this patient have left ventricular failure, right ventricular failure, you know, what's the optimal strategy? If you put an LVAD in someone with biventricular failure, that's a failing strategy that's going to increase morbidity, worsen renal function, worsen ICU state, and the patient's going to be kind of worse off, okay? Which is why biventricular failure transplant is preferable. You transplant somebody, okay, you don't put an LVAD for biventricular failure. The bottom line is I want you to think about right ventricular failure, and this is you know, Keshava uses uh, this, uh, this nomenclature and I've adopted it because I like it. And so how do you think about, should someone get a transplant, an RVAD, or BIVADS, or what should you do? So if you have a patient with left heart failure, okay, left heart failure, that's a given, how do you manage that patient? And so you think about what's the pulmonary vascular resistance, okay? As you guys know, you can't transplant somebody with fixed pulmonary hypertension you put a donor heart in someone with fixed pulmonary hypertension, the donor RV is gonna fail, right? The donor RV is used to pumping at a PA pressure of, probably 15. You put it in someone with a PA pressure of 40, the donor RV is gonna fail. So someone with a very high pulmonary vascular resistance with a good RV, RV stroke work index, you know, would do perfectly fine with a VAD, okay? But if you have somebody with poor RV function, okay, even if they have, you know, normal pulmonary vascular resistance, just putting in an LVAD is not gonna help. So this is, this is a lot of what we do as we think about this. As you guys, there's no FDA-approved RVAD. There's no really good RVADs to go home on. So, you know, this, this BIVAD decision is a tough one, right? You, 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 you think about, well, maybe I can put in an LVAD and replace the tricuspid valve, nurse the patient along and get them home. You know, but what you don't want to do is, you know, the, the, the case that's right up, that's upstairs in the C.T.I.C.U. now, who's now coming up on, uh, you know, two, two, two months maybe of biventricular support, you know, and renal failure. You know, so I, I think that this is a, a, a challenge uh, in terms of managing, uh, you know, right ventricular failure and um, source of a lot of decision making. Okay, so you know, how do we manage uh, RV failure? You know, the thought is if you're running the LVAD pump too high, you'll push the septum, pull the septum over to the left ventricle. So you lower the LVAD speed. Meticulous diuretic dosing, the sweet spot we think is a CVP of 12 to 15, okay? You may need to come down your in inotropes a lot slower. They may need the inotropes to support the RV. DIG if your renal function's okay, maybe sildenafil. And ultimately the treatment for, uh, for this VAD complication is gonna be transplantation, if at all possible. So the best strategy I think is to anticipate RV failure and try to avoid it if at all possible. And this is a Centromag, you guys have seen this. This is a paracorporeal centrifugal, okay, LVAD. We use it for LVAD and RVAD support. Okay, this has no bearings. This is a pretty good pump. I think a lot of centers use this pump and um, we use it as well. Uh, So I I wanna stop there. There are five minutes left and, uh, you know, kind of the take home points that I want you to get from Uh, from the talk really are, I want you to uh, understand uh, the uh, importance of blood pressure in VAD management, uh, which is a big one. Assess the heart failure risk in your patients. When you see them, does this patient need a cardiology consult when you're seeing them in the MICU or the SICU? Is this a sick or heart failure patient, their trajectory is gonna take them toward transplant and VAD. Recognize the importance of blood pressure, okay? you know, when you, when you have an LVAD, appreciate the RV. Think of the heart as two pumps. When you're thinking about VADs and transplant, I want you to get in, get in the habit of, well, there's an LV and an RV, and they both have to be functioning in some way for the LVAD to work. If that's not gonna happen, you know, what, what should I do? Okay, and then understand some basic LVAD parameters. You know, you set the speed. You know, what goes into the flow. Of the vad, how does blood pressure affect flow? How does preload affect flow? And understand the power. If my power is high or my power is low, you know what's going to happen with the vad. Uh, you know, and so we're always available. If you have questions, you know, the cardiologists or the engineers, you know, to to help with troubleshooting these. And so. Uh, I think that's it. You know, it's a lot of ground to cover. You know, and no one's going to be a VAD expert. But the hope is that if you see these pumps, you can try to understand what's wrong, kind of get the ball rolling a little bit in terms of troubleshooting the VAD. So I'll stop there. Uh, does anyone have questions? Thanks, Dr. Right. Thank you.